when they finally got George to the United States, he went right from the airport to the Museum of Natural History, and it was literally like royalty coming to the museum. There was this truck that came, backed up to the museum, and there was everyone, all staff members of the museum outside, waiting his arrival, waiting for this crate to come off of the truck. I remember wheeling this crate down the halls into the museum lab area, and it was really this amazing moment. And then to open this crate, it was all very emotional. Hi, I'm Jay Ingram. Welcome to Anthropomania, where we highlight just how far we humans will go to attribute human qualities to every other living thing on Earth. The George in that story you just heard is Lonesome George, the last of his species of tortoise in the Galapagos, who, when he died, was shipped to New York to be taxidermied. That's why I say he is Lonesome George, not was. And the man who did it, George Dante, will join us in a moment to tell that story. As usual, I'm joined by the other anthropomaniacs, Erica Seren and Nikki Wilson. Hi, guys. Hey, Hey. So, um, taxidermy. What was your first reaction when we started talking about doing a podcast on taxidermy? For me, like, I've always been really interested in dead things. When I was growing up in Jasper, a friend of mine lived at a park warden station. Her dad had keys to this freezer where they kept frozen dead animals that, you know, got hit by cars or what have you. And I loved going in there. <laughs> like, you know, there'd be wolves and it just gave me this opportunity to get up close to them and kind of have a look at how they lived their lives based on what had happened to their body. Having said that, I don't think I really knew exactly what taxidermy was. Well, you're going to have a better idea in a second. (laughs) What about you? I wasn't really the type of kid that was interested in dead things. No offense to you, Nikki. You know, whatever floats your boat. (laughs) But, you know, I, I have to admit, kind of when I think of taxidermy, the first reaction I have is a creepy one. You know, I get these visions of dark, wet basements filled with stuffed animals with eyes that kind of follow you around the room. (laughs) You know, there's a reason why Alfred Hitchcock featured taxidermy so heavily in his movies. They're kind of unnerving. I was talking about a dark, cold freezer. It's totally different. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) This is going to be disappointing, but I I didn't really have much of a strong emotional reaction to the idea of taxidermy one way or the other. Having lived both in cities and in the country, certainly in the country you're used to, and at least in Alberta, you're used to seeing dead deer by the side of the road. So I'm glad you guys had very different uh, impressions. It'll be interesting to see if your impressions change as we go along. I will say one thing, though, that no matter what anybody thinks of taxidermy, one thing is true. It has way more variety than you might think. They're all different kinds of taxidermy, rogue taxidermy, conservation taxidermy, anthropogenic taxidermy, and I suspect some we don't even know about. It's enjoying a real renaissance right now, and we're actually going to have the rising stars of taxidermy on the show today. It's going to be incredible. Taxidermy has really moved from the creepy basement that Erica's described, maybe, (laughs) to the art district of Los Angeles. There's a lot more young women. It's very slowly becoming more diverse, and there's even a world championship that began a few decades ago. 
We're definitely riding a new wave in taxidermy, but it's not the first time it's been popular. That's for absolutely sure. You know, in Victorian England, taxidermy was incredible. I'll just give you a quick example. During the, quote, great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations that was held in London in 1851, an ornithologist, a taxidermist named John Gould, set up a building to house a display of 320 species of hummingbird. They were all delicately posed on branches or resting in nests. 75,000 people visited the Hummingbird Pavilion, each paying sixpence for entry. Okay, how much is sixpence? Just curious. It actually, I just don't think it matters. <laughs> when, the, when, the, when there's 75,000 of them, yeah. no matter how little it's worth, it's worth yeah. something. With inflation, it's probably $220 <laughs> on Ticketmaster. <laughs> That's right. Victorian-era taxidermy was all about bragging rights. So, for example, in 1851, there was this gathering called the Great Exhibition in London. And taxidermists made these huge sort of displays of, like, leopards, wolves, lions, often from different continents. Their furs arranged in kind of an imposing, very vivid and often really violent displays. It was essentially a chance for the countries participating, or at least their taxidermists, to say, my country is better than yours. And the displays just kind of reeked of this imperialism and world dominance. Remember, this was a time before Amazon. Like, you couldn't just order exotic animals off the internet. You actually had to get in your boat and go get them. And only the wealthy and powerful could do that. The crazy thing that I saw was that taxidermists were everywhere in major cities like London and during the Victorian era. They were just as prevalent as, you know, modern day Starbucks and treated that way as well. If you were living in Victorian London on a Saturday, for example, you would go to your butcher, you go get a haircut, and then you'd stop by the taxidermist on the way home. Yeah, you know, that's pretty weird. I can't imagine just walking down the street, getting a coffee, and then going into the taxidermist. But that's what I love. Could I have my cat, please? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it'll be ready in three weeks, sir. No, I would never do that to Oscar. That's terrifying. We'll talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, the thing is, that's what I love about the Victorian era, because besides these huge, huge colonial dominance scale taxidermied pieces, they also went small. Little animals, squirrels have, and, and dressed up like humans, okay? Anthropomania mm. at its best. With their tiny t-shirts. Squirrels having boxing matches, squirrels playing cards. 17 taxidermied kittens sitting around a table pouring tea and offering each other cake on tiny china plates. With no opposable thumbs. Oh, that's so cute. It is cute, though. Lapping it up. Uh, you know, and just so they don't just have tea, 20 kittens playing croquet, some watching the game, uh, one even riding a bicycle. So, you know, you might think that's odd, but here in modern day Canada in Alberta, we have the Gopher Hole Museum, which is the same kind of thing. Richardson's ground squirrels dressed up as judges in court or having tea, all of that kind of stuff. So, Hey, all hail Victorian England. It gave us so, so much taxidermy. Joking aside, you know, these kittens are very cute, but we have to remember that taxidermy actually serves a really important purpose because you don't just see them in these kind of obscure museums. You see them in natural history museums as well. And their purpose there is a message of conservation. 
So you can imagine the responsibility George Dante felt when he received Lonesome George, who was the last surviving Pinta Isla tortoise from the Galapagos Islands. You know, he was first observed in 1971. He was never really able to reproduce, and he died in 2012. Um, So it was a huge loss for the world. We'll just never see those tortoises again. He was probably over 100 years old when he died. So they shipped him up very carefully, sent him off to Dante, and he's here to talk about it. My name is George Dante, and I own and operate Wildlife Preservations and George Dante Studios. And I am primarily an artist, taxidermist, sculptor, and my companies specialize in museum services. We were contacted through the American Museum of Natural History and asked if we would be interested in taking on this project. Of course, you know, there was no question we wanted to do this. And that piece has become this monument for conservation because there's no more iconic figure than George. I can only attribute it to when archaeologists open up a tomb or something like that, this whirlwind of emotion to see George which was very sad because so many got to see him in life. And now here he is in this frozen state. And we opened up the crate. We took him out. We're trying to be very respectful because here's this deceased member of our community. And here is this specimen that we need to preserve. So it was, there was, it was just a rush of everything you could possibly imagine. We needed to figure out how to do this properly, how to really capture the essence of George, how to respect him, how to respect the people that worked with him and knew him. That must have been incredibly stressful for you. It was, I don't even know if I could put it into words. I mean, I was a nervous wreck through the whole process. I figured if I screwed this up, this would be the last job I ever did. I'd have to disappear somewhere in society. Could never show my face again. So We worked very closely with scientists through the entire process. We wanted to have him in this very grand pose with his head up and this very proud look. And we talked for what seemed like days for how a Galapagos tortoise stands. What position does his feet go in? And what's the difference between standing and looking like he's going to take a step forward? So where, you know, how should the foot placement be? How high should his head be? There were talks about there's a couple inch difference from him being alert looking around to him being upset and actually angry. I mean, there were just inches of difference between this, things that I would have never thought about. And and that's where the collaboration between people that worked with George and scientists really come into play. So when the final piece was done, I was told that people cried when they saw him for the first time. And how could you possibly put that into words, how much that could mean to you? So for me, it was a a great success, and I'm very pleased. Well, it's an incredible story. And I mean, it really points to how much taxidermy is evolving. Can you talk to me about that? Taxidermy through history has always had this kind of stigma that goes with it, where it's an older gentleman in his basement stuffing these animals, these very crude techniques, or it's the production studio where we're just mounting hunting trophies. And all those stereotypes may be true, but taxidermy has gone through this renaissance lately. The face of taxidermy has changed quite a bit. And I don't think people understand how much of an art it is, how much talent and skill goes into creating a piece. And for museum taxidermy, I don't think they realize how much science actually goes into it and how much of a collaboration it takes between artists and scientists. 
wow, you could just hear in his voice how high the stakes were. Imagine having to work with material that you truly cannot find anywhere else on earth. It's pretty incredible. And, you know, I I did pick up on the fact that he used the word stuffed uh, as a caricature of what people might think taxidermy is. And I think a lot of people think that. And, and, you know, they, oh, you, you open up the animal and you remove all the bones and guts, or maybe you leave the bones, who knows, and you put in a bunch of straw or rice or something and sew it up. And it's not like that at all. The best analogy I know is that imagine you have a banana, you peel the banana, you eat the banana, it's gone now. Those are the innards. And then you build a, a, out of styrofoam or something, the exact shape of that banana, wrap the skin around it again, sew it up. Now you've got a taxidermied banana. And while we're talking technical, how about we talk about hummingbirds? I mean, imagine working on a creature whose body is smaller than your pinky finger and weighs less than a piece of paper. How do you do that? How do you use your hands to work on something that's smaller than your fingers? That must be so challenging, right? And you have to skin it too. Yeah, and the skin is incredibly delicate. The feathers are really tiny. You know, the longest one might be three centimeters. Whoa. So these days, if you want to do that, you might want to talk to Alice Markham. She's a rising star in the field of taxidermy. You might know her from the documentary Stuffed. And hummingbirds are one of her specialties. There's only a few people in North America, you know, including myself, who can successfully do hummingbirds. They're just so unique in how that they move and that they can hover, but also the structure of their feathers. They're just these little flying jewels. They're special to me as as a bird watcher. They're special to me also because a lot of taxidermists go big, right? And I always thought, what about going small? So it's, it's my edge. So I asked her how big a hummingbird baby is, and she said it's about the size of your thumbnail. So she's definitely got an edge there and also a very sore neck, what she told me. <laughs> because if you want to work on hummingbirds, you better be prepared to be hunched over all day. Well, get that girl a neck brace because I don't think she's going to be slowing down anytime soon. She's such a unique picture of a taxidermist, and maybe it's rooted in the fact that she used to work in marketing. She really knows how to put a fresh look on the field of taxidermy. And her studio in Los Angeles, Prey Taxidermy, has been slammed with requests ever since. Yeah, it sure has. And you actually probably heard in that clip that there's a little bit of moving around in the background. That's her intern still at work because she just can't afford to have it stop while we were having an interview. So... Fair enough. The pandemic has uh, not slowed things down there. You know, despite all her success, though, she's still getting this pushback from some people that taxidermy is creepy. I mean, I think she's got a few Erica's in her life. That's all I'm going to say. Sorry, Alice. I was watching like a scary movie the other night and they're showing this house and to immediately let us know that this house was creepy, they showed a bunch of taxidermy and I just, it's just like, oh, okay, good. They've got the taxidermy in there. It's a creepy house. So that's what she's up against. When people hear the word taxidermy, they think of the Bates Motel. The biggest misconception is people think that I'm like an undertaker or a mortician. I was at like a cocktail party and I was talking with someone. They're like, oh, so you're basically Cruella de Vil. And then just walked away from me. They think that we're taking the animals and like draining the blood. 
and filling them with like formaldehyde or something. That's really what people think. They don't understand that none of the bones, muscle or organs are typically in there. I explain it as taking the rind off of an orange and that you simply replace what the innards of an orange looked like and put the rind back over it. At the end of the day, you're wearing a scientist hat, you're taking it apart and you're keeping the skin. And then you need to refill it with something. So in taxidermy, we hate using the word stuffed, even though that's the title of the documentary I'm in. We don't stuff taxidermy. Actually, what we're creating is an internal sculpture, a kind of a form or an armature that the skin is going to go over. So when we're creating that, you're using your sculptor's hat, right? So we go from being a scientist to being more of an artist and we're creating that inner form. And then we take the skin and we put it on top of that form. We sew it up and now you put on your stylist hat, if you will, and you're blow drying it, whether it's feather or fur and you're styling that hair or that feather, right? Just like you would style your own hair. Now, of course, I skipped over a lot of things. There's wires, there's glass eyes, there's all of this different stuff. I love the blow drying. Uh, So Alice is part of a new guard and definitely taking away some of the stigma in a profession that's been a bit shrouded in mystery and, you know, the creepy thing we talked about. But it is still dominated by white men. Competitions only have about 20% women. And that's something she's hoping will change. Even though we've gotten a lot of more women into it, it really lacks people of color. And it really lacks other people who might be, let's say, non-binary, etc. Taxidermy is still very white. Like it is so white. So I think that's something that really needs to change. And I hope when things open up, that does translate to seeing a lot more diversity at our competitions. Change is definitely needed. And maybe one of the places we can make that change is at the World Taxidermy Competition. This is where taxidermists go to show off their very best pieces. People now come from many different countries and there are hundreds of entries. And actually, if you've ever seen a competition, picture this. Something like a high school gym, a lot of guys wearing camo, and you're standing there and, oh, look, Here's a guy carrying a huge grizzly bear on a stand that contains vegetation that a grizzly bear would normally be stand. Oh, wait, there's some fish over there. There goes a container with a bunch of tiny humming. And then look at the judges. And there's people, we've already talked about this, using a hair dryer to blow dry the hair on their coyote. I mean, it is surreal, but wonderful at the same time. Uh, It feels like best in show, but for dead things. (laughs) And they do have best in show. And it's really, really demanding. You know, I actually, I think it was in the documentary Stuffed, where I saw a judge staring, like, I don't mean at the mouth. I mean, into the mouth of an animal, because the judge was checking whether the little bumps on the surface of the tongue at the back of the tongue were the right pattern. Now, that's demanding. We have to remember that in the 19th century, that initial heyday of taxidermy, it was mostly white men from colonial powers. You know, diversity in that period of time was a French white man talking to an English white man. It didn't go much further than that, (laughs) right? 
So, you know, a, a perfect example was the 1867 exposition in Paris, and a French taxidermist, Jules Verreau, created something called Arab Couriers, a courier attacked by lions. Oh, God. And it, imagine this, a man on a camel fending off a lion somewhere presumably in the North African desert. There's a second lion lying dead, apparently shot by the guy. And he's defending himself against the living lion with with a saber. The camel's in a panic. It's bellow, bellowing. The whole scene is startling. Well, get this, guys. That exhibit is still here. It's at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh. Wow. And in late 2020, they actually removed it from public display. And even though they changed it from Arab courier being attacked to lion attacking a dromedary, it's still so culturally mm -hmm. suspect. Yeah. A man of color on a camel. The guy is wearing what looks apparently to experts like a collage of clothing belonging to five different North African cultures. It was done by French taxidermists in an area of Africa controlled by France. Anyway, they've shrouded it, and they're trying to decide now, the Carnegie Museum is, trying to decide what to do with it. Was the man originally taxidermied? That's a good question, Nikki. The man was not. He was made of plaster. But when they did some fixing up of it a few years ago, they discovered that there was an actual human skull in the plaster head. So, you know what? Okay, well, that's that, that is... <laughs> That <laughs> Sorry, that's where I go to creepy. Yeah, that, that, that whole thing is. But it just demonstrates how there has been change, but how there needs to be change. It also is spinning out some new forms of taxidermy, like rogue taxidermy. Have you guys heard of this before? Rogue taxidermy? Rogue taxidermy. It's essentially where you take these animals or even animal parts and you mix and match them with inanimate material. So something like glass or metal. And the result of rogue taxidermy is these really jarring pieces where you might have a goat that turns into a fish or high-heeled shoes made of animal feet. It definitely has a different vibe from um, someone like Lonesome George. Oh, totally. Well, and a, and a wholly artistic vibe. I think the intention is that this is a branch of art. There's also something that I love called recreation taxidermy. And that's where the animal you're taxidermying no longer exists. And therefore, you have no skin to drape over a body <laughs> and you don't have a body either. Um, there's a guy named uh, Ken Walker, who's a taxidermist in Alberta Beach, Alberta. He's been world champion three times. Wow. So he's, he do his he's, you know, top level. He can do his tongue papillae, but he also does recreations. And he did one of something called the Irish Elk. This is, a, this is a beast, although it was neither Irish nor an elk. And they went extinct about seven or 8,000 years ago, stood like two meters, six feet at the shoulder. But they had the biggest antlers of any member of the deer family ever, as much as three and a half meters across. Like, that's like 12 feet. And the antlers alone weighed 40 kilos. So he set out to actually taxidermy an Irish elk, and it was quite an adventure. The Irish elk was an interesting project because basically what I did is I fleshed it out the same way I would any other taxidermy project where I didn't have an actual carcass to work with. But I did template the skeleton from the Smithsonian of the Irish elk that's on display there. And, and with recreations, you have to build the form before you build the skin. 
So what I did is I got the biological measurements proper and all of the proportions, and then I went to uh, cave paintings, 30,000-year-old cave paintings from Chavez and Cognac. And, and what I did is I used those as reference of somebody who had actually drawn one who had seen a live one, you know, so I could kind of extrapolate how the animal would have walked or balanced or moved through the artist's interpretation. I wanted to know that when I was finished building this, I was pretty much looking at an Irish elf. I wanted to know what they looked like. And you know, they are a symphony of balance. I've seen so many of them put together, like they got look like airplane wings sticking out of their head. You wonder how they could exist. But when I put mine together, I understood that when it was running, it would just tip its nose up and the uh, antlers would fall behind the withers and it could actually stop. It's absolutely amazing the way that animal is designed when put together right. It makes sense. So in with my Irish elk, you can see that it flows. It doesn't look awkward. I felt like I felt like the first guy to see one in, in 10,000 years. That's incredible, seeing it for the first time. I'm just really curious about where the skin comes from. If we don't have them anymore, where does he get it? Yeah, right. It is a recreation. He used deer skins because actually the Irish elk was misnamed. It actually was a pretty huge deer. And uh, so that's what he used. But when he got to the upper part of the animal, he colored it a little bit differently because he's convinced that animals that occupied open spaces like the Irish elk did generally tend to be more than one color. There's that science again. Well, it is. And, you know, part of it is speculation, right? He builds up the huge muscles on the shoulders the way he thinks they must have been given the skeleton and given the Ice Age art. But there's still a little bit of speculation in there, but it's driven by all the data he could possibly gather. Ken also mentioned that the hair actually stood up on his arms when he realized he was able to bring some of these paintings to life. To me, that really demonstrates the power of taxidermy. It tells a story of the animal that a painting just can't. I actually experienced this firsthand when I worked at the Yukon Beringian Center. We had this giant short-faced bear there. I'm not sure if it's still there anymore, taxidermied with modern-day bearskins. And when you see a grown man come face-to-face with the bear, because that's literally how tall the bear is at its shoulder and head, There's a power in that that you just can't experience with a skeleton, for example. We used to have kids sleep in there, um, like have sleepovers overnight, and they were kind of terrified. But it also led to these great questions, like, why did this animal die? And then it leads to modern day questions about why are animals dying now? So there is very much a conservation element built into these experiences. I think it's so interesting that literally every single person we talked to said that conservation is the main driver for all taxidermy. No matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, no matter what your pieces look like. And that's really exemplified in Divya and Thraman. They ran Gotham Taxidermy in New York City, and they actually came from the fashion industry, something you can definitely see in their work. You know, they're not a traditionalist like George Dante, even though they do work with George Dante part-time, if you can believe it. My name is Divya Anandraman. I am a taxidermist in New York City, and I am here with my cat, a black-throated magpie jay, a mouse, and a flamingo. Divya grew up in a city, and natural history museums were the first place where they could 
really see the incredible diversity of the natural world through the museum's taxidermy displays. Divya told me a story about how they were asked to commission a piece where a male hummingbird sits in a hummingbird nest. Male hummingbirds don't sit in nests. But no matter how fantastical and fashionable Divya's pieces are, the message of conservation holds true. I think with taxidermy, it can be either artistic science or scientific art. I think it's really fluid. It depends on the end result. It depends on who it's for. Even in a case like a museum or a nature center or an educational piece, like that hummingbird I was describing earlier, you know, it looks like a hummingbird, but it's a male in a nest. That's what they wanted for the story they were trying to tell and that display they were trying to make. Whereas someone who's a purist might say, oh, no, this is wrong. If it's helping get across the conservation message, is it really wrong? Depends on who's looking at it, too, because people interpret pieces very differently depending on whether they're looking at them in an art gallery or if they're looking at them in a museum or at an educational center or as home decor or as something in a store. People have a very visceral reaction to taxidermy because it's a dead animal. And having a visceral reaction to death is normal and natural. I'd be disturbed if someone did not have that visceral reaction to death. But in that reaction, I think there's also a lot of like vulnerability that can happen. There's a lot of possibility and opportunity there to talk about why it makes them uncomfortable and to translate that into a moment to talk about conservation, to talk about, you know, this animal might have died from this reason. But by getting close to it, by appreciating its beauty, you can help protect it in this way. Or, you know, I'm a city person. I grew up in cities all my life. It's only pretty recently that I've had the opportunity to go out into nature that's not a park. There's this idea that I must be desensitized to death because I'm so comfortable around it. It's more of understanding it and knowing the gravity of it. So I feel like it draws me, you know, it draws me closer. So there's a lot of opportunity there to to kind of take that discomfort and sit with it and acknowledge that it's okay instead of shrinking away from it. I'm so captivated by Divya's discussion about taxidermy being an opportunity for us to talk about death and wildlife death, perhaps in particular. It made me wonder if there's a little bit of a divide um, between urban and rural people. Not that it's death isn't difficult for everyone, but it's just also that maybe when you're more exposed to wildlife death, you have a less visceral reaction. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. I grew up in a city and the first time that I really saw a dead animal, like a freshly dead animal, probably wasn't until my 20s. Yeah, whereas like I grew up walking around in the bush and looking forward to picking apart dead things, you know, some bones, some evidence of a kill. I mean, just a couple of months ago, there was a deer killed behind my house, you know, by a pack of wolves. That could be the reason why I think taxidermy is creepy and you don't. Hey, Nikki, what about you, Jay? I don't think it's creepy. And I grew up in a city and didn't encounter dead animals on my way to school. All right, there goes my argument. Well, do you have taxidermy in your house, can I ask? Uh, No, but you know what I do like is imitation taxidermy. So uh, I have the head of a giraffe that's anatomically accurate, but it was done (laughs) by a ceramicist. So it's all, you know, it's clay, but it looks exactly like a trophy head of a giraffe. Now, that may just make me weirder than both of you. I don't know. What about the conservation message? Because just about everybody on the show had that in one form or another. Do you buy that idea that uh, taxidermy can awaken a a better understanding or acknowledgement of conservation? 
Well, I think I do, but if it's the only opportunity for someone to get to know and interact with Earth's biodiversity, then I think it's probably an excellent starting place as opposed to not having that opportunity at all. You get to see these animals in such detail. You actually can see what their fur looks like and the small little shapes in their leathery skin. It really shows how complex these creatures are and how important it is to keep them around. And, you know, Ken Walker's work on recreations extends that feeling back into the past where dealing with animals that we know a living human has ever seen. And then you come forward through George Dante, you've got animals that people did see but no longer exist. To Divya's point, who gets to decide if it's legitimate conservation or not? Like, is that male hummingbird in the nest legitimate conservation or are we taking liberties we shouldn't take? It's a good question. When does it properly convey that conservation message? I'm not totally convinced that the rogue taxidermy stuff is as conservation convincing as something like Lonesome George, but maybe it's just kind of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now, I'm not talking here in what I'm going to say about rogue taxidermy. I see that as art. But I've seen taxidermy that will turn you on to conservation by turning you off what they've done. And I'm, ta- <laughs> I'm serious. I'm talking about lamps, uh, the base of which is a deer's foot, yeah. or umbrella stands that are a hollowed-out elephant's foot. And if you see that, and I have, the first reaction you have is, That's gross, that's uh, disrespectful, and if anything, it makes you more positive about the importance of conservation. Yeah, good point. I think that's why a lot of the guests we've had on today have really championed this idea of ethical taxidermy. You don't see them ever getting an animal source from anywhere other than accidents or dying natural causes. It's all permitted heavily. There's a lot of paperwork involved. You know, just going back to the creepiness, which we started the show with, and you were just talking about, I don't see how you could listen to the four people we had on this podcast and still think it's creepy. Because when you listen to them, they are artists, they are scientists, they are combining those two skills and sets of awareness. And, you know, that's just not creepy. So I think creepy is probably an image that if taxidermy is going through a renaissance and becoming more diverse, will be one that it can shed. And I, of course, I didn't feel it was creepy in the first place. So I think that would be a great move forward. Yeah, taxidermy's cool. Maybe it just needs a rebrand. Maybe it doesn't need a rebrand so much as an awareness on, on the part of the rest of us that it has rebranded. And it's not that kind of stuff that I was just describing. Any last thoughts, either of you? I think I've just been really blown away by the level of skill involved in being a strong taxidermist, from being a leather tanner to being an incredible sculptor, you know, capturing the musculature of the eyes, the flexing tendon and muscle of the forearms, you know, for a large cat. This is a multi-skill set I certainly don't have, and I'm in awe of it. I truly am. I don't know if I'm ever going to shake that creepy feeling I get when I think that these glass eyes are following me around the room. but um. You know, I appreciate what they do for the world. And you know that there are people whose main job in life is to create glass eyes for taxidermy. Of course it is. 
Special thanks, Nikki and Erica, as usual. And thanks to today's fantastic guests, George Dante, Alice Markham, Ken Walker, and Divya Anandthraman. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Follow us on your favorite podcast app and share it with someone else you think might enjoy it. If you're curious about the content we mentioned in today's episode, you'll find some helpful links in the show notes, as well as all the ways you can reach us. On our next episode, we bring anthropomania home to your backyard. Urban wildlife, as in raccoons, pigeons, coyotes, rabbits, they all seem to be taking over our cities. Of course, the inverse is actually true. We have taken over their space. Our next episode features three of the smartest urban wildlife researchers out there sharing their findings and predictions for the future. And Erica, Nikki, and I will debate the pronunciation of coyote, 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 coyotes. That's all on our next episode. Bye for now. I'm Jay Ingram. What about you guys? How do you pronounce the name of that animal and why? I pronounce it as coyote, and that's because I grew up with my dad saying coyote. And I'm firmly in the coyote camp. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is influenced by the cartoon Wiley Coyote, right? <laughs> so I'm gonna go I'm gonna go all nerdy on you guys and say, you know what? The word originated in the language spoken as far back in Central America by the Aztecs, the language called Nahuatl. And the word in Nahuatl and I'm going on the internet for this pronunciation, is, you got to listen carefully, coyotes. So what's actually weird about this is that my mother pronounced it, and we were living in Winnipeg, (laughs) where I never saw a coyote. She pronounced it coyote. Mm. So I think she was channeling (laughs) Nahuatl. I'm not really sure why. (laughs) 